Hi everyone, my name is Kat Savage and I'm a clinical hypnotherapist and well-being expert working in the creative arts sector. In my line of work, I get to meet some amazing, colourful people, from actors to artists, people who live their lives by their own rules, fueled by passion and determination to bring their unique talents into the world. I wanted to discover what it took for people to leave the usual nine to five and hop on a dream, to capture their bravest moments and share these meaningful conversations with you, so that together we can explore the ideas, emotions and moments that could potentially change our lives too. The Brave Moment podcast starts now, in the middle of the COVID pandemic, probably the bravest moment not only for my guests, but for the whole world. So let's keep talking, have some fun and enjoy the show. This week on the show, I talk with wild food expert and founder of the Family Foraging Kitchen, Vix Hill Rider. Vix is an award-winning forager based in Cornwall in the UK, whose business recently featured in The Guardian as one of the top autumn activities to participate in in the country. She has featured in many articles, created her own book on seasonal wild food recipes and was headhunted by one of the world's best-renowned gin distilleries to be the botanical advisor for their new wild flavours. We talk about everything from top tips on foraging to simple recipes you can create right now in your kitchen. It is with great pleasure that I introduce you to this week's guest, Vix Hill Ryder. Hello, Vix, and welcome to the show. Hello, thank you for having me. <laughs> it's such a pleasure. I've been so looking forward to this interview. Thank you. So you are a forager. I am. What does that even mean? Um, it means that I eat from the hedgerow. So I go out into the wild every day and I try to find food to feed my family, um, get excited by it, cook it in my kitchen, and then teach other people what I've done. <laughs> really, really cool, especially at a time like this. Especially oh my at a time like this. Um, can you remember the first time that you ever went foraging? Um I can't remember the first time I ever went foraging, but I decided to pick a favourite memory for you. Ooh. Um, I remember a time when I was about five and my grandfather and my great uncle Pip were going to take me to find uh, what they called dinner plate mushrooms out at my Edgecombe over Maker. And the reason why I remember it so clearly is because foraging for me is a tactile thing. It's not... It's not something that we just remember with our eyes. We remember with all of our senses and that's how you learn. And I can just remember the sound of the mushrooms being pulled up out of the grass. And that, that is just stuck in my memory for such a long time. They've got a really bizarre squeak and it's that noise and the, the sort of the image of it coming out and being put in a basket. was It's just always stayed with me and the excitement and everyone jumping up and down and being happy at how many we had found. I know that's really weird. Um, <laughs> it's, that's what, you know, it's, foraging is so, it's so sensory that you tend to remember how things smell and how things taste rather than just a mental image of what happened does that make sense wow. foraging wasn't a thing when I was a kid it wasn't a word it was something that you just did every day it was part of life we went out we found food we came back we cooked it so so your whole family were foragers essentially pretty much yeah I mean my parents worked full-time 
And so when they went out to work, my nan and granddad looked after me, which is why I had my granddad as my first teacher, which was great. He was a, a amateur botanist, really. And uh, he was always either growing something or picking it in the garden, or we were out and about roaming around, putting things in a basket. So it was just complete fluke of luck that I'm his granddaughter and that's what we did. <laughs> really, you know, way of life. And my dad as well, he was a, a lecturer in horticulture. And so our family walks were him basically teaching us Latin names of plants and and being out every Sunday stomping around the Rain Peninsula. So I'm just I'm just a very lucky person. That's basically. so incredible. Yes, that is a really, really lucky position to be in. So do you find then, I mean, how much do you refer to books now or is it completely instinctual? I very, very rarely look in a book because, because I work with the hedgerow every day in the coast. I very rarely see something I don't know. Occasionally I will, and that's when I get the books back out, especially when it comes to fungi, which is a whole other spectrum <laughs> of learning. Really, I'm not a mycologist. So that's not my area of expertise. So this time of year, the mushroom books come out and I'll, and I'll have a look. But but because I'm, I'm out there working with them and picking them every day, I definitely just know what they are. And it's been really lovely to pass that on to my children because my eldest son is eight years old and he just has a very natural intuition to grab from the hedge and put it straight in his mouth. And it's just, I sometimes watch him, I think, oh, is he going to get the right thing? And I say, can you show me first? And he rolls his eyes at me and says, mum, I know it, you know, I know it's sorrel. And I'm like, yeah, okay, but I'm just checking, you know, but yeah, just if, if you're with it every day, it's like driving a car. You don't get in a car, do you, and sit down and think, oh, can I remember what to do? Is this the stick? Is it, I mean, I'm not, I don't drive. I'm just assuming that you get in and do it, right? It looks very automatic for people. Like they're not really having to think about it. And I guess it's the same if you do something all the time. It's just you have an affinity with what you work with and it's it's natural. It must make you really sad then to see so much of society sort of disconnected from the land, it's happened over the last couple hundred of years, hasn't it? I mean, we've we've grown as a civilization to no longer see ourselves as part of the living earth, but as something that can control it um, or gain from it. And that really came in, I think, with the introduction with farming. You know, before our ancestors, it, we would hunt, we would gather, we would we would treat the landscape with respect and see ourselves as very much the same as it, as part of it. And then when we started farming, we started to cut down the trees and control the land and decide what we wanted and how much of it we wanted. And then we grew a little bit away from the hedgerow and then we decided to build supermarkets. You know, I'm taking a big jump here, but you get a supermarket, you get your shop and then everything gets put into packaging and then everything has a label on it and we just become lazy. So we don't even now look at what is in the food. We don't turn the packet over very rarely and go, oh, this has got 100 ingredients and 20 of them I don't can't pronounce the name. <laughs> you know, that it's we, we've sort of become this very automatic society where we would just trust in what we are told to do. And I think this is where the disconnection with food and landscape comes, especially with children, is that the last couple of generations, not that it's their fault, they're not guilty of it, it's just the way we've been conditioned or now... If the cupboards are empty, we will get our iPads out and we will do a Tesco online delivery. Sorry, other supermarkets do exist. Um, <laughs> uh, you know, but we will get online, we will do a delivery or we will take them down to the supermarket and we'll push them around in a trolley and go to the till. Um, I think where what we need to do now is to open the cupboards and say, OK, let's go and take a walk and go outside. And we'll pick some stuff and then we'll go, what can we go and buy from the shop that will go with this? And so it's just about retraining your brain into how do we connect back into the landscape and make it work with us rather than controlling it so that we always have something at hand. How easy do you think it is to sort of reinstate that natural ability to source food in the wild? 
within a second. Honestly, <laughs> I think with it, people say things like that to me and I'm like, well, just come outside, just go for a walk or just step into your garden just for five minutes. And within that five minutes, if you're lucky enough to have a garden, if not, we'll just take a walk down to the local park or whatever. But within that five minutes, you could draw a little you know, meter square with some chalk and say, what, what is actually here? Let's just have a look at what's here. And when you, you might say to me, oh, well, there's a pavement and there's some shrubs and there's a tree and okay. And I go, what's on that tree? What's in that shrub? What's growing out of that pavement? And that's, it's almost like putting a microscope to the world around you. And then when you see that it's not just things or colour, it's actually food that smells and tastes good and it's got nutritional value. And it's, it's you know, every single plant that you meet has a story to tell. So every time you meet a new plant, it's like learning someone's history and their family members and what they can do for you and what other people they can introduce you to because you've met them. And it's it's very exciting. It sounds crazy, <laughs> but it's like, it's like um, I don't know. I think if, you, if you're passionate about something and you really love something, you can make that rub off on someone in a moment if you present it in the right way. So you get, you know, you, you get an intuition for what that person's like and how enthusiastic they're going to get. Because let's face it, not everyone's going to get really excited by a dandelion. But, <laughs> but you'll be surprised the amount of kids that I've met who, you know, will kind of go, oh, no, who's this hippie coming? What is, you know, what is going on? And then within half an hour of being with them, they're suddenly like wanting to know everything. You've just got to tap into people's curiosity. Mm. So, I, I mean... After doing your course, I went away. I'd written loads of stuff down in my little notebook, and I've still got it actually in there, in my cupboard. I should say, listeners, I'm just pointing without you knowing <laughs> what I'm talking about. Um, but but when I went out on my own, like after doing your course, I felt quite scared that I didn't really have the confidence to to trust what what I was seeing. I mean, how would you help someone with that if they've just gone on a foraging course yep. with you in the family foraging kitchen? What, what can you say to help them be confident after they've done that course? When you come on a walk with me or when you go out in the hedgerow yourself, you're going to probably recognise at least by sight three of those plants that we've spoken about. Even if it's ones that you've known all your life, let's just say it's a dock leaf, a dandelion and a blackberry, you know, you're going to know those three things. And you might feel disappointed with yourself. like, Oh, well, I know those ones. What about all those other ones? She said, just pick those ones, pick them, put them in your basket, come home and try a new recipe or try something new with them. And then when you've cooked with that, those three for a few times, then go, right, what other three can I remember? The only way you really get to know them is step, it's like if we went to went out for a night out and went to a rave and you met maybe 20 new people that were awesome, you wouldn't have them all back the next day for dinner. You'd probably you know, <laughs> pick one at a time or two or three and invite them around and get to know them really well. It's the same thing, isn't it? You know, I'm not going to I'm not going to go out to the hedgerow rave and pick 30 plants and invite them into my kitchen for a kitchen party. Um, but I'm probably going to pick five and create something really tasty. And so this is what you've got to do. You've got to pick a few at a time and get to know them intimately, get to know them as your mm friends and then do that with each one it's, it's so that, that makes it so much easier in my head so talking about three things that we could possibly pick what's in season right now oh there's tons in season so i'm not <laughs> gonna baffle you with things. so top um, three the that top you could three think of. that's in season right now okay uh let's go for a classic let's go for sweet chestnuts it's autumn everyone knows what they are um most people even if they can't recognize a sweet chestnut tree will recognize the nuts on the ground or their spiky little green cases and it's so much fun to put on a pair of boots and to squish the outer casing between your toes not your toes that would really hurt don't do that please wear a strong sturdy pair of boots because otherwise you're going to know about it right 
Um, put your wellies on, <laughs> squish all them between your wellies, and you know, they'll just pop out. And they're these beautiful brown, golden, shiny jewels, basically, that are so wonderful. Get them home, put a little slit down the side with a knife and roast them in the oven. Take them out, peel them, and then don't just eat them. I mean, a lot of people think, oh, roast chestnut's boring. There's so much you can do. You can do uh, chestnut puree, chestnut pasta sauce, chestnut flour, chestnut cake, chestnut ice cream. I don't know, whatever you like to do with them, put them on your toast. They are a free source of protein that are nutty and delicious and, you know, they're just really easy. So that's number one. Okay, so, so go and get them. And we haven't got long left now because we're coming into winter. So go down and get them before the squirrels eat them all. Um, and then I think another really good seasonal one would probably be your slows. Mm. Um, and when I say slows, people think, oh, okay, gin. Okay. Um, <laughs> everyone, everyone, gin. Everything, everyone just thinks gin. Um, the reason why I'm really passionate about slows is because they are not just an alcohol uh, flavouring, um, although they're wonderful for that. Uh, you can really utilise them as a source of vitamin C, as a jam, as a sauce, um, as a cake ingredient. Um, you can make slow ketchup. Um, I make a really beautiful um, slow and dark chocolate tort, which I serve with clotted cream. Um, oh, yeah. it's, the, it's the sexiest dessert you've ever had, right? And, and the reason why I came up with that is because my son, uh, my eldest, uh, got really cross with me for making him go and pick essentially what was going to be my booze cupboard um, and, wanted, and wanted some kid-friendly recipes. So I spent ages messing around in the kitchen trying to find desserts with these things. Um, and so this, this really works. So, And if you're doing it with children, then replace the dark chocolate with like white chocolate or milk chocolate because slows are quite a uh, mature uh, sophisticated they're a dark and sophisticated <laughs> pudding it's a good one for a date if you're listening to this and you're going on a date and you want to impress someone then then do that for pudding for pudding with clotted cream um so slows oh and when you finish with the slows in your gin as well if you're putting them in gin don't throw them away i see so many people doing that uh take out the stones um and put them into your christmas cake or christmas pudding or make truffles with them there don't put alcohol fueled boozy fruits in the compost utilize them or you know phone me up and i'll come around um and number three so we've got, we've got chestnuts we've got slows um i'm gonna come with one actually that's all year round but it's looking really tasty in the hedgerow right now um and that's common sorrel i love sorrel yeah. that's a that is literally the first one that you made us yep. pick on your walk um it's quite lemony isn't it yeah it's kind of lemony a lot of people say it tastes like uh, granny smith apple Oh really? Kind of got, like, if you think what the skin of a Granny Smith apple tastes like, that's yeah. Sharp, no, yeah. I get that. Yeah. yeah, I get it. So, um, so it's also apple season. So that that leaf really works well with apple dishes. So sorrel and apple and walnut salad is really beautiful. Um, sorrel pesto, sorrel salsa verde, sorrel with fish, uh, sorrel with egg. If you're vegan just sorrel in a bowl with some olive oil and balsamic <laughs> vinegar i don't know how you want to eat it but eat it um really high in vitamin c more vitamin c than an orange and you really at this time of year can't confuse it with its lookalike in the spring lords and ladies leaf and my son loves to tell people this has what's called uh, the road to hell around the outside of the leaf which is like an indentation that looks like a track right? oh, the totally road to does. hell yeah and, and a sorrel leaf doesn't have that but also uh, lords and ladies only come out in the spring mm. uh they, they they start the same size but they're much larger and wavier different in colour they get quite gro like dark green yeah. and waxy don't they as they get older yeah and they, they feel different as well I mean it's, te it's uh, textural but yeah if you if you pick the wrong thing and you're not sure rub it on the back of your hand first it, you know I'm doing that to the to the microphone <laughs> by, by now that your skin is going to be burning you don't want to put that by your mouth but what you know once you so get like I said that. once you get to know this plant <laughs> once you know it you can you know by sight from five you know from yards away you, you know what it is and uh and it's just it goes so well with everything you can quite you can pick a bulky bowl 
of salad really quickly really easily and it's mm. so fresh and green right now in the hedge it's it's great one of one of my favorite recipes actually that you taught us initially was to take a dock leaf fill it with rice um put blackberries and oxide daisy petals in yeah, it yeah yeah that was so nice mm, yeah. oh my god it's still one of my favorite things to do yeah. um what, what's your favorite what's your favorite plant to pick oh mate that's a really hard if you question. were a plant if I was a which plant, one would you be Vic? i know which one i'd be but which one which one which one would you be i'd be a stinging nettle definitely <laughs> i would be urtica the, the goddess that is a stinging nettle stinging nettles are so misunderstood which i quite think i think i often am as well they have this you know people are people are really weary of them and they see them as this noxious in your face kind of crazy thing in the hedgerow which uh, or in the garden which they want to pull out and get rid of but what nettles are is that, well a they should be the national food of britain to truly believe that they don't grow all over the world do they not no they don't there are some parts of the world where stinging nettles don't grow right i and can't imagine that in chile, they, in chile they grow them in polytunnels to be sold as vegetables at farmers markets shut the front door they don't have them in japan so there are parts of the world where they don't have these things and yet and yet we have them here they've got so much iron within a nettle that they are so wonderful especially for females um those of us that have a lunar cycle they're brilliant for us they're brilliant for muscles they're brilliant for people with uh, arthritis for with people with seasonal affective disorder uh with depression i swear to you now and if it doesn't work, come back and hunt me down. If you eat nettles at least three times a week, you will be the happiest person. You will be bouncing around because they, are, they naturally, you don't have to sting yourself to get that serotonin in your body. You just have to eat them and make it a part of your life. And they are just... How do you prepare them? Okay, so many ways. Uh, so if you want to, if you don't want to get stung, put them into boiling water for about 15 to 20 minutes. Let it cool, take them out, squeeze them out. You can chop them by hand. Then you can put them into any dish. Um, if you just want to have nettle tea, you just put it in your tea you put it in your cup pour hot water on hey presto don't buy nettle tea bags if you live in britain i can't <laughs> nettle tea bags we live in britain Plas- nettle tea bags made of plastic in plastic mm. in a box with plastic on it go and pick some nettles put it in it blows my mind um you can also make beer you can make wine you can eat just any dish um you can eat them raw but that's a bit tricky there's a whole section of the internet dedicated to edification which is stinging yourself it's not the dark web don't worry but some people do like there's a whole thing out there but they're just they're misunderstood wonderful things that kind of I think kind of sting you as if to say hey I'm here eat me use me and I think you know in a way I'm a little bit like that I can be a bit prickly and a bit like I can rub people up the wrong way but I think if you really take the time to know how to approach me then actually I'll make you happy I like to see you like that basically talking of happiness yes um I mean obviously you've just talked about nettles and how beneficial they can be for people suffering with things like depression how can foraging benefit your mental health I mean what what are your sort of top foraging tips for people that are suffering with things like depression and anxiety we we all know it's really obvious that going outdoors and being in nature makes us happy you know I can be stuck indoors and have a for my head full of problems and all I have to do is go for a walk and just keep walking and naturally like solutions will come to my mind or ideas or things I haven't thought of so just being outside even if you haven't got your basket even if you're not foraging (laughs) is going to help so just get outside is my advice to anyone I think when you when you're foraging for food you're a gathering something which is really nutritious and good for you and you're outside and then naturally you're going to start thinking about how you're going to cook that dish and then you're going to spend time in your kitchen 
hopefully with the radio on, some nice music, a glass of wine, you're going to take your time, you're going to sit down, hopefully with a loved one, if not by yourself, and enjoy, just enjoy that simple thing of, I have gone and picked something and cooked it and presented it on the table. And just, that in itself kind of lifts lifts me out of a dark mood anyway. It makes me feel a bit better about, about the world. But when you start eating these foods, you're, you're putting all this wonderful, great stuff in your body. So it's common sense, really. It really is. I think just get outside and eat get something outside. wild. Talking of getting outside, you it, it's not the only thing that you do foraging. Uh, one of the one of the lovely things that I saw you advertising ages ago on Facebook was you were collecting stories for our grandparents' secrets. Hmm. Talk to me about that. Yeah, so that was um it was an organization called Unlimited that were doing this whole project called Transform Aging. And that was basically, they had a big pot of money that they wanted to spend on what they called the ageing population. Now, to them, the ageing population was anyone over 50, which everyone, all my friends who are 50 were like, horrified that they were now being told that they were ageing, right? 50 is the new 20. (laughs) So basically, they were just saying that the old, we we don't spend a lot of our time thinking about what's going to happen to us in later life. We're very unprepared for it. And so what happens when you get to later life is you suddenly find yourself maybe unemployed, uh, maybe in poverty, uh, lonely, maybe a spouse dies and you maybe you've never done anything for yourself and all of a sudden you've got to like fix the tv but your husband's always done it i don't know like so basically we don't think about these things so they were they were offering money to help older people whether that be in rural isolation or whatever and so i was suddenly thinking what can i do to help older people in my community i was sort of scratching my head and thinking well they all know how to flip and cook and probably all of them can forage better than me so what could i do and then i started thinking about my granddad and how he was just he could do everything in my eyes. He was he could he was a carpenter. He could sew clothes and mend shoes. He could garden, feed the family. You know, he was he just seemed to have so many skills that I was thinking, well, what do I do? I have any more of those other than foraging? And I was like, I can't fix shoes. I can't sew clothes. I can't change a light bulb. I can't fix the engine of a car. There were so many things I suddenly thought I can't do. And then I was like, wait a minute, how many of my friends could do this thing? So I was sort of asking people, not many could do it. And then I was thinking, God, our kids know even less, you know, they rely on mm. YouTube for everything, you know, and I do as well. I'm like, how do you do that? Oh, YouTube, right? And I was thinking, no, this, this isn't right. What can we learn from our elders? Why aren't we asking older people what they know anymore? You know, tribally, we would look to our elders. We would look to our, you know, how they would teach us the skills that they had and we would learn. And then we would pass that down to our children. And we've stopped doing that. We've, we've just, you know, we, we now put our kids in front of a a video tutorial online you know even in lockdown Mm. I was finding it was happening with my kids you know all the teaching was online it was like oh let's have music classes Miley Cyrus or whatever she's called is going to do the music class now great you know why why aren't you asking your granddad who can play violin you know I know lockdown was very different but Mm. so anyway so I went around and I decided to ask all the older people in our community age 50 to 100 what they knew and then I, I interviewed them a bit like this. I did like a, uh, an audio interview and then I wrote their stories down and I chose, I think, 30 of them to be published in a newspaper, which I spent ages writing, photographed them um, and made this little newspaper called Our Grandparents' Secrets. And then what came out of that was that we started to employ people who we'd interviewed for, in the business. So um, I suddenly got willow weavers and uh, people that could um, sew tapestries and people that were journalists who wanted to take creative writing courses and all. <laughs> all these people saying, well, I, could I do something? Yes, absolutely. Come down. People that wanted to make jams. It was just great. It was great. So we could now offer employment to those who were retired or were 50, around 50 and struggling to get back into the workplace, um, offering traditional skills back to the community, which is flipping awesome, really. I met some really cool and interesting people. <laughs> who was your favourite person? I know that's a really hard question to ask, but what's the story that stood out to you the most? Oh, Okay. Um, 
oh, there's a few really good ones, but um, there's a, a guy that lives in Plymouth with his wife and um, he he was he kept phoning me up. He, he was a lovely guy, but he, he would phone me almost weekly for a chat. <laughs> and uh, he kept saying, you've got to come to my house, you've got to come to my house. And it turned out that he was an engineer um, and he used to work in the boatyard and he was, he was a designer of things, basically. And when he retired, he decided to turn his knowledge on his, uh, onto his household. So literally everything in his house was designed to save money or save space. Mm. And it was just insane. So I went to his house and he had like, all of his heating was rigged up so that he didn't have to pay any heating and it was solar everywhere and all the stuff in his house was made out of recycled, like upcycled. Mm. And it was just, you know, it was he was showing me all these bills and stuff of how he pays hardly anything and uh, how he conserves water. There were so many things, like he had designed a shower thing for his wife, you know, out of bits of crap from the skit. But he was just saying that <laughs> you can be so self-sufficient if only you had... The skills to do so and they're so easy to learn if you ask people who know how to do those things so it's literally just don't be afraid to ask if someone can do something that you really want to learn just go and ask them how do i do that and most people will be willing to show you they would just be willing to show you that's great isn't it what i mean from that experience what skill have you taken on um yeah there were so many things that Martin taught me. I was trying to think what the best one was. I think what the water thing was what he gave me the most, really. Everything in his garden was rigged up to catch or trap rainwater. And wow. he had all these things on his on the top of his house that would do that as well. Because, I mean, I know from this summer, you know, I'd, I've just made a new garden and we had like an over £300 water bill because I was watering the garden morning, <laughs> afternoon and night. Not really thinking about it, like, do, 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 splash happy, you know. Oh, my cosmos don't look blushy enough, splash, splash. Right? And then we got this water bill and he was like, my husband was like, oh my God, if gardening costs this much money you're never doing it again right um so then I suddenly thought what am I doing I've you know I I saw what this guy was doing so now I'm like putting water butts everywhere and I'm putting we've just put some um plastic tubing um on top of our woodshed that collects down into our water but like anything you can do to save water to water like just things like that just just silly things that pay people with who are older with more common sense than me (laughs) do that I can learn from I think really Talking of the water, mm. you don't just forage on the land, do you? No. You forage in the sea I as do. well. What can we find on, on our shoreline here in Cornwall? Oh, this is like, so basically foraging is like Alice in Wonderland. And, and when you <laughs> when you start, you do all the hedgerow, you do all the woodland and all that. And then when you start looking at what's available in the sea, you go down this extra rabbit hole of just awesomeness. We've got over 800 varieties of edible seaweed in the UK. That's insane. Okay, 800. What? <laughs> not all of those. Not all of those are gourmet ingredients, you know, but there are at least 15, at least 15 just on our doorstep, which are miraculous ingredients and actually contain every single nutrient that we need to survive as a human being. So I always joke to my to my customers, like, if we have an apocalypse, head to the beach because that's where your food is, you know? <laughs> I totally um, agree with that. Yeah, don't, get, don't get stuck in a supermarket <laughs> with the zombies. Go to the beach. Um, so, yeah, we, we've, got, we've got things like... Um, We've got things like dulse. Now, if you're vegan, that's really important because dulse is being promoted across the vegan market as bacon, the vegan <laughs> bacon. Um, so if you pick dulse and you fry it or cook it, it does taste like bacon. It's amazing. Wow. Um, and it's just hanging there off the rocks, you know. Um, we, were, we did a festival once and we were cooking up DLTs, dulcelets and tomato baps, and they were, they were flying off the hook. Um, yeah, but it's just, it's just great, isn't it? I mean, we, we, and there's nothing, there's no seaweed that you can pick off the rocks on the shoreline that will harm you. 
So, you know, you were saying, oh, I went out my basket and I was a bit scared, blah, blah. It's a whole different kettle of fish on the beach because you can just go down there with literally. the scissors and you can like, it's literally a whole kettle of fish. And you know, if you're pescatarian, then you can also eat the fish, which is great. Um, but yeah, you just you just have to go and down it and just start playing with things and experience. People think it's slimy and it, it wraps around your ankles when you swim, that it's, it's not food. And I think if you go down there and start to look at it as pasta or mm. as vegetables or as a spice, and when we've got spice, see, we've got seaweeds that taste like spice. Oh, you know we've got pepper dots, which is like a lemon spice in your it's just a crazy taste explosion in your mouth it, you know it's just the world is full of food if you if you open your eyes to it basically <laughs> yeah you're so driven in your in your skill set in what you do how how do you maintain that motivation especially at a time like now yeah well, I think it's been it's been as tricky for me as anyone really with the motivation this year is is extraordinary because of what we've had with the pandemic and with a lot of people losing income and also it's affected me and that I can't I couldn't for a long time take people out so I had a, mm. a period of where you know it was hard to be motivated to do it but I think what really kept me going was the my phone was going off the hook and my the emails were coming in my inbox of people saying to me you know what is there, is there just anything basic that we can go out and get and eat you know I think when people lose their income it's a it's a sudden shock and a panic of like how are we going to get by especially if you've got kids and and food is is just vital we've got we've got one of the highest rates of food poverty here in Europe in southeast Cornwall and is that you know, so yeah in, in, it's, it's hidden because it's people are really proud and don't want to don't want to reach out for help and don't want to say but there are people here who will go without food to feed their children who will have it all on credit cards stacked up who are in terrible debt just to feed their kids and it is shocking and it is it's really not seen people think of Cornwall as like this affluent place this beautiful place and it is it very much is but there are there are massive pockets of it which which aren't like that and so free food is it's just important and what I do as part because that's why I'm a social enterprise is that I offer free walks for low-income families you know every, mm. nobody knows who's paid who hasn't there's always four or five places on every walk I do for people who, who can't afford to pay and so I was getting all these emails and saying, what can we do? What can we do? Or are you doing any walks? Because we'd just love to come out or just refresh ourselves or just... And um, so I couldn't take people out. So what? So the motivation I had to keep going was really, I was doing little films, little short things with my kids, um, basic things that people could eat. Um, and then just just over the last few weeks, really, it's especially with what's happening with um, the government, we have making decisions like taking free school meals away from kids in half term and stuff. It's it's highlighted to me really that as a community and as a member of the community who can help, mm. that I should be helping and I should be doing something. I think if I was just to give up and hang my hat and say, screw you all, I'm just going to fend for myself, I, w- I wouldn't be able to sleep at night. I wouldn't, it wouldn't sit well with me. Um, I can help people just by showing them two things they can put on the table. So that's my my motivation at the moment is is very strongly to you know, it's like our grandparents' secrets, isn't it? It's like I'm not, I'm not an elder yet. I'm not quite, I'm not quite forty, <laughs> darling. Um, but I think it's, I have an ob- a moral obligation to give my skills to the children of my community because if you can feed, I believe it's the last true freedom, freedom we have left as human beings on this planet is the ability to be able to feed and nourish ourselves for free. And if you have that, then you will have, you you will be okay for life. If you can feed yourself, you can survive. I just, I mean, I'm sat here listening to this. I don't have children, and I can't even imagine what it must be like to be in that position where you can't feed your own kids or you can't feed yourself because you have to feed your children i mean why why do you think the government aren't supporting people like you 
more i mean what are they why why isn't this rolled out across the land in all of our schools i think there is a there is an undertone there's a strange undertone going on at the moment with there there's a there are some people who kind of think that families in poverty or low-income families are misusing the money they have or not living a clean lifestyle and it's kind of their own fault or if or if you can't afford it you shouldn't have too many children or if I'm you know if we're going to give you more money you're going to go and spend it on cannabis and t- pints of tenants or whatever you know this is it's just kind of expensive very, things <laughs> I think there's it's a bit like that argument you know why would I give money to the homeless man he's just going to go and spend it on a bottle of whiskey there's this real kind of strange undertone of you know I see it a lot on social media these comments like well why should we you know fund these low-income families but it's like no child is born into their family of choice. No no person on earth goes, oh, I think I'm going to go and be the child of Mrs. and Mr. Smith, the crack dealers on the corner. No, no, nobody has this. Every single child on the planet has the right for nutrition and to be fed and to be looked after and cared for. Just, that's just it. That's just, there shouldn't be a moral question over that. Should, that should be how it is. And we all find ourselves sometimes affluent and sometimes with no money. You know, it can happen overnight. I went from a really high salary in London back in the day in part of my salary career to suddenly having nothing. That's how I started this business. I went from really high money to nothing. And then foraging wasn't just a hobby, creating gourmet meals to flog to restaurants or to chefs. It, it was necessity to put food on the table for my family. So, you know, I don't know what's it. You know, I, I can't. I can't say where I lie politically because I might lose half my customers. But let's just say that I think this current government could do better. Yeah, I agree with that. Um, as a collective of people, just the general public, what can we do to help support people like you? Um, well, if you've got a few quid in your pocket, come and pay for a foraging walk. Um, I don't want to do a whole advertising push, but I'm, I, I am quite cheap uh, as foragers go. Um, if, you can, if you pay for a course, then you are helping to put profit back into the community. Somebody who can't afford to pay will come on a course. So, so coming and supporting local businesses is, is really important. But also, I think um, just spreading the word, encur- encouraging people to, to go out and open their eyes and look around them and, and to look at what businesses are in your community which are operating as a social enterprise rather than just a profit-making business. And there are loads of them around now. It's a really popular model. It should be how all business works. You know, every business should have a level of corporate responsibility or green responsibility and we should be putting back to kind of help skill up and heal the earth. Mm. That's, uh, well, I mean, that's a mic drop right there. Boom. (laughs) Boom, as she's out. Heal the earth. Let's have a little think about this next generation then, because our next generation are incredibly skilled with technology. Yeah. I'm I'm dumbfounded half the time by what my seven year old nephew can do, let alone, you know, what the teenagers can do this this day and age. I feel like a dinosaur really. <laughs> um but what message, if you could if you could just shout across the world one message to the next generation, what would you say? Uh go outside. <laughs> They are, they are, this is a thing, my my children are just as bad, if not worse than anyone's, you know, my eldest is obsessed with Minecraft and <laughs> all the things that boys his age like, um, and they always want to watch the TV, and that's just natural, that's kids, you know, my, me and my husband were talking about this the other day, and he was saying, God, when we were kids, we just wanted to put Sky TV on, remember when Sky TV came out, <laughs> and all you wanted to do was watch WWF wrestling, that's what you wanted to do, and it's like, yeah, I remember, Hulk Hogan was the bomb, you know, but I think... 
what, and he still and is. He still is. <laughs> yeah. um, but I think what what's important to do is at some point, and this is important for adults as well, important for everyone, put your screen down for five flipping minutes, no matter how good at it you are, and actually step outside. <laughs> Go outside, you know, just that's that's my I, there's nothing else I could say <laughs> go outside whether you're a sur- whether you're surfing walking running jogging foraging just lying in the sun get some vitamin d into you it's it's the it's the best best medicine that's my advice I love it um funding mm. uh we had a little chat before you came on the show today and you were talking to me about your next project that you could possibly do if you had the funding for it talk to us a little bit about that okay so um, I'm ha- we're, we've got hopefully some money coming in but we're not sure yet we're still waiting to hear back so the idea is that um, we're going to do we're going to carry on from a pro- long-term project we've had running called Free Food Forever um, and this is where we basically show you what you can pick uh, seasonally all year round and how you can cook it into really easy meal ideas but we're not just going to do that we're also going to do uh, wild food boxes <gasps> Ooh. Um, so it's going to be every household will be entitled to one wild food box a month those who sign up i'm not going to randomly shove it on the doorstep and run away like cherry knock here you go What's um, the you're going to have box? to sign up to the scheme so it's free but you, you ask for one right um and so one a month and in there will be some wild ingredients they will be labeled because i know how everyone likes their, likes their labels um and there's going to be a little recipe card in there of one simple recipe with each of those ingredients that you could do there's also going to be a little bit of guidance like almost like a treasure map of whereabouts in the locality you can get those things now it's not going to pinpoint not going to spell it out for you like go down the steps and turn right it's going to give you an idea because part of foraging is about the exploration and the treasure hunt of getting it for yourself and also we have to do this responsibly and not overpick and not trash the countryside um so it's going to give you some ideas um and then we will have free spaces on all our walks so what you do is hopefully you'll get the box you'll get the ingredients you'll cook the dish you'll get really excited you'd want to come out on the courses you're going to want to learn more and then after a year of that you're going to be confident to then just cre- make this a part of your everyday life so this is a scheme that i want to roll out here first see if it works and then if it does work then we've got the potential really to roll this out nationally because um there are foragers all over the country all over the country all over the world you know there's no there's no way this can't go further um and just get other organizations doing similar things in this area so that foraging stops becoming a a trendy or hippie or you know (laughs) i don't know people joke to me they're like oh we're so poor we're gonna have to come and eat berries with you and it's like ha 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 yeah but you're not realizing that it's actually i'm i'm the lucky one that i'm eating the berries out there and you're eating you know i don't know what you're eating because i can't understand the label so it's gonna be it's gonna be wonderful and hopefully hopefully it's gonna inspire a whole generation of people in our community that it's gonna become like foraging's not a term it's a way of life like what like when i was with my granddad so it's full circle that's the plan if your granddad was sat here now and he could hear you talking about this what do you think he would say to you he'd probably have to turn his hearing aid up he'd probably, he'd probably say what quite a few times before. um i don't i honestly don't know um i hope you'd be really proud of me i do hope that but um yeah I, it's hard i get quite emotional when i think about him actually i wish he was here now but i think he would just be really proud and um yeah i don't know can't really say because he's my granddad Aww. but uh that's let's, let's carry his uh his mentality forward <sighs> <laughs> I miss my granddad too. He was he was an exceptional man. He um he was Belgian for a start, so he, he was 
go into the room, demand a coffee, and then go immediately out into the garden. And he he was a very avid gardener, yeah. very very cool man. As was my gran, actually, very different mentality to the world in that generation. Oh, oh totally. I'm growing so chrysanthemums for, in honor of my granddad. Actually, now I've got my own garden. He always used to grow chrysanthemums and sell them on the front step. Oh, like wow. always. So so I'm trying to. At the moment, they're all coming into bloom, so it's really lovely. Like, Do you know what I would love a pussy willow tree? Yeah. Because when I walked into my grandparents' house, there was a pussy willow tree in the middle of the front garden and we used to put the pick the pissy willows and stick little googly eyes to the top of them and pretend they were little mice yep. and that always every time i see them i think of my grandparents along with bluebells because they had a lovely bluebell work a blue cousin <laughs> a bluebell wood yeah. at the at the bottom of their yeah. garden which we used to play in as kids and it, it's incredible my my memories of my grandparents are all outdoors. Yeah, but they're not just visual, are they? They're, no. They're, sen- they're sensory. They're very sensory. Yeah. Oh, I'm really gutted that we're coming to the end of the show because I've, I've soaked everything in, as I always do whenever you talk about oh, foraging and good. stuff like that. Um, now, the show is called The Brave Moment, as yeah, you yeah. well know. So talk to me. What what do you consider to be your bravest moment? Um, I think was doing this, really. I mean, the reason why it all happened is because um, I met this wonderful lady called Fee, this beautiful lady who was making it doing a bag workshop up at maker when maker junction was open that was a, another really cool place that shut down unfortunately there was this bag making workshop and and sage was was really little and he was just lying next to me on the floor and um i remember thinking how cool it was to learn how to make a bag and fee said well i'm sure you could teach me some cool stuff and i was like i, I just don't, I don't know anything you know I, my brain just went blank and i said i could show you what you could eat from the hedge i suppose <laughs> and she was like what and i was like yeah i pick food from the hedge and she was like well that's cool can you come and show me <laughs> and i was like well yeah i guess i could and it just sort of it was being brave enough then to think i might can i actually do this i'm you know i'm not a botanist and i'm i'm not a trained teacher so why on earth should i be going out there and teaching people what they can eat but this is my whole life and it's my passion and i think sometimes you have to practice what you preach and and preach what you practice <laughs> so so yeah she she kind of gave me the balls to really to be brave to go and do it but then also be, being brave was having to go and stand in front of panels of people time and time again asking for money to do what i do so the amount of times I've been stood in front of like Dragon's Den and gone, please give me money for berries and nettles because, um, and, you know, in front of lots of competition and get the money. That's always been hard to do, but it's getting up there and having confidence in yourself and, and just doing it. Be brave. If, you, if you're passionate about something, make your passion your reality. And you have, you totally have the balls to do that if you put yourself out there. Thank you so, so much for your wonderful words of wisdom today. It's been such a pleasure to have you're you. welcome. Thank you. If people want to find you online mm-hmm. where can they look okay the plug time uh, so i'm on everything uh, the website is www.familyforagingkitchen.co.uk we're on instagram we're on facebook we're on twitter we're on pinterest uh yeah we're, we're there um so just find me somehow and there and get in touch that'd be cool thank you so much Rix. you're welcome <laughs> Since this recording, you'll be pleased to hear that the Family Foraging Kitchen were awarded the funding they needed to roll out their free wild food boxes to help families who are struggling to feed themselves at this time. This is another great example of Fix's relentless drive and motivation to change her community for the better through her skill set, and just goes to show that when you apply your knowledge, purpose and passion to a problem, it leads to success. For Vix, it isn't about her. 
It's about serving others, continuing to share her wisdom so that as a whole, everyone benefits, everyone learns something new. She isn't precious about her gift or interested in charging vast amounts of money to release it to the world. She lives it. She breathes it. And as a consequence, success follows her in the form of recognition for a job well done, feeding an entire community for free and building a brand whose reputation for excellence precedes it. So ask yourself, what does success mean to you? What does being brave really mean? To me, being brave is simply beginning and actioning a vision and seeing it through, whatever that takes. And being successful is having others recognise that what you do has some sort of purpose for the world, be that bringing joy, the use of a skill or tool, or influencing the world in a positive way. All of which apply to Vix's business and way of life. Most importantly, how you feel about what you do in the world influences your personal success in it. If you've found your skill and your passion, however challenging that may be, however crazy it may sound to others, if you feel it's right, then do it and do it 100%. Because what may be something that comes naturally to you may be crucial for others and in Vix's case may even save someone's life or livelihood. If your idea is small, maybe start by sharing it with a few good friends or family members, people you trust to give you good advice. Or if, like me, you feel you have so much to learn about the world, seek out people like Fix and find a skill that speaks to you. Apply it bit by bit to your life and who knows, maybe your new hobby may become your greatest passion. It takes courage, time and repetitive action to do something extraordinary with your life. But if you stick with it and enjoy it every day. In just a few months, you will start to see results, improvements, and something of significance that you have learned, made, or done. Start to see how your idea could help others and reach out and connect to other people. Don't be afraid to ask for help. That's a biggie. And in the beginning, you will most likely need it. I suggest reading Amanda Palmer's book, The Art of Asking, and set your ideas on fire. Keep a journal of your journey so you can visualise your steps and see your progress and carve away time and priority to allow your dreams space in your life. As Jean-Paul Sartre once said, commitment is an act, not a word. Join us next week when we speak to singer and songwriter Charlie Harris on her excellent musical journey. Thank you so much for taking the time to listen to the show. If you have a spare moment now, please like, subscribe and tell me your thoughts in the review, which will really help other people like yourself to find the show. Of course, you can also share with your friends and follow us at the Brave Moment Podcast 2020 on Instagram or the Brave Moment Podcast on Facebook. If you're interested in getting in touch, pop on over to the therapy page Coping to Mastery on Facebook or via the website copingtomastery.org. It's been so wonderful to have you all here with me again. Please get in touch with the show with your own stories. And don't forget, your brave moment starts now.